And once we get that right, which is for me the most important thing, that they have, first of all, respect. The second one is commitment. The third one, passion. Those three ingredients are non-negotiable. Welcome into the Non-Negotiables podcast. I'm Gavin and I'm joined tonight by Justin. How's it going, Just? Hey, Gav. Good, good. We thought Pascal was going to be with us tonight, but he got called away at the last minute by the FBI to go undercover and infiltrate a mafia family in Boise, Idaho. He's gathering information for an upcoming RICO case. So good luck, Paz, and hopefully we'll see you on Monday. Um, so let's start with the return of the Who Am I game. Uh, it had its own little international break. So this is a player that's appeared for both Arsenal and Leeds. And I think this might be the only player we ever do that's had a career spanning two decades playing for two clubs and each of them twice. So are you ready, Jazz? Sure thing. All right. I began my career with Leeds United playing 146 games. I then moved to Arsenal where I played 223 games. I returned to Leeds United playing a further 209 games before ending my career at Arsenal, making 18 appearances in my second spell. Who am I? Any ideas? Maybe. Yeah, well, before uh, before Paz went undercover, he actually sent me his answer, and uh, I have that, and, and Paz got it. So we'll see where, you, we'll see where you're at at the end. Um, okay. And everybody at home, remember to uh, go and leave your answers as well. It's, we'll be posting it on all our socials, and we are the NN Pod everywhere, on Twitter, on Insta, and Facebook. So that out of the way, Juz. Um Huge weekend coming up, absolutely massive. Um, Liverpool go to the Etihad before we face Leeds at home. There's questions coming out of the international break, which I think we all thought there would be in terms of fitness. Uh, looks like Saliba is probably going to miss. Partey obviously picked up that mysterious injury we don't know too much about. We know he was training today um, on the City side. Phil Foden has got appendicitis. I gather that's a pretty unintrusive uh, operation now as far as it goes, and he's probably only going to miss a couple of weeks, but he will definitely be out this weekend. And it looks like the Erling Haaland injury might actually be real. Um, so let's start with that one, seeing as it's the first game up and, and the one that's easiest to cover. No, Haaland is, uh, is, is a big blow to them, especially with Liverpool so shaky at the back, right? Yeah, I'm still a bit skeptical uh, that he is going to miss. Um, I know the training photos have shown that, you know, he hasn't been there. He hasn't been participating for the week. But, you know, I mean, it's still a a club photographer. You know, I don't know if mind games go that deep, but it'd be easy enough just to, you know, not publish any photos that he was in. Um, So I don't know. That'll be one to watch. Uh, I think... Do I think Holland gives him the advantage? Yeah. I mean, it's, he's a machine, you know? Um, So it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting one. I would take pretty much any advantage Liverpool can get right now. Definitely pulling for them. Uh, But I do find it interesting. So no Foden or Holland, which, uh, you know, Foden, if I'm, if I'm correct, isn't he a pretty big fill in and like the false nine when Holland's not there? Yeah, I mean, I would guess they'll just pivot straight to Julian Alvarez. Who, who, you know, he's not Holland. He's not going to play exactly the same way. But I, 
I don't think they're going to... I'm not saying they're not going to miss a beat because they are, I think, over the last couple of months, they've really... They're learning to play with Haaland. We knew this was coming, right? We said from the, from the get-go that they were learning to play a different way. And, and I think if you watch some of their football over the last couple of months, I think they've learned what they're doing, basically. I'm not saying they're the finished article, but, you know, they've been putting sixes and sevens past people. I think they've just learned how to use him. Um, I think it is a big blow to them if if he's out. But Julian Alvarez is a good player. You know, he's a World Cup winner. He's scored goals whenever he's been been called upon. You, you know what I find interesting, though, is that, uh, like, in this week, preparing for Manchester City, them with and without Holland is two completely different experiences, you know? Absolutely. It's two completely different teams. And, and we know shenanigans go on, right? Because we've seen Arteta do this before, where right. he clearly instructs the club photographer not to take pictures of a certain player at training. And you only do that for the big games. And for Manchester City... This is a huge game because yep. they can't afford to fall further behind us. And it's Liverpool who for the last four years have been their main rivals. And you know Liverpool are pissed. Yeah, absolutely. It's a massive game for them. I think um, even if not everything is done and dusted, of course, uh, being 11 points behind at this point in the season is going to be a massive blow, especially when they're they're looking at more than just league games. You know, they still have FA Cup and Champions League as well sam- sandwiched in there. So, this is a huge game for them. Um, it's, I'm definitely not going to miss this one, you know. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean the next two games that they they play they play Liverpool early on Saturday morning. Then there's no midweek game for them. Then they go to Southampton next week, Bayern at home. Then they've got Leicester at home. So you know, if you look at those games, the the Liverpool game is not the one they want players missing for. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think I think that Leicester game um, on the 15th of April is one that they probably will look to to rest a few, rotate a little bit. But this one wouldn't have been the game that Haaland was going to miss if they were having a choice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, they'd want everybody fit for this one. Um, again, you spoke to there just being that uh, that rivalry over the last couple of seasons, you know, fighting for the title like tooth and nail. So I think um you know they're gonna want any opportunity they can to uh to beat Liverpool regardless of what the table looks like. Yeah, and it's gonna be the same the other way round, thankfully for us. Like I'm I'm really hoping Liverpool are Liverpool are right up for this. Now I'm sure I'm sure they will be and I think they're gonna need to be really on their game to get anything missed because as I said over the last few weeks City really do seem to have settled into that rhythm that we've been kind of I'm not saying scared, but we've been a little bit worried about them getting into that into that rhythm. You know, we've built up a we've built up a good lead to this point, but we've just got to keep winning to keep that pressure on. And here with them going first, I think they're really going to feel it Saturday morning. I think so as well. Um, you know, yeah, we've we've done a good job with the gap, and and uh, you know, we've maintained a, a solid gap throughout most of the season, which is nice. Um, I feel like, well, what do you think? Do you think it's it's um, there's more pressure on the team in first trying to maintain that gap or the team in second trying to chase it? You know, it's kind of two totally different mindsets, isn't it? I think it switches, right? Because at, at <clears throat> Liverpool, Liverpool Man City or Man City Liverpool is, is at 12.30 uh, UK time on Saturday. Uh-huh. So in the build-up to that, the pressure's all on, pressure's all on Man City. Right, that, that all the pressure is on Man City. They're sitting there, they're looking at that table, they see the gap. They've got the game in hand, but they know it's they know it's eight points. 
So they see the gap as well as we do. So the pressure is all on them. Once they've played, the pressure switches to us. It has to. Yeah. And then it's, you know, whatever their result, the pressure is on. And the thing is, we've got some tough, tough away games coming up, right? We go to Liverpool. We yeah. go to Manchester City. We go to Newcastle. Even going to West Ham, they're fighting for their lives. So we've got some tough away games coming up. We cannot drop points at home to Leeds. We can't do it. You just yeah. can't do it. This has got to be one of the games that you chalk off three points, move on. So this weekend, oddly enough, it may well be that the pressure is is more on more on us. You know. Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, you know, I could see. I doubt City do this, but maybe supporters. I could see uh, this Liverpool game being one where you know, um, not necessarily a free hit, but maybe understandable if they drop points in. Um, just like this Leeds game for us is is one we absolutely can't do that. Um, you, you yeah. have too, too many tough, tough roads ahead. Yeah, I think if you look at the Man City schedule, like we've all done 50 times, you're circling the games that you think they, they might drop points in, right? right. Like that's, that's just what you do. This Liverpool game, Brighton away, obviously our game, and then you've got a hope that that mess of a Chelsea team can get signed because other than that, I I just don't see where it is that that Man City are dropping points. You know, if you and, and we've spoke about this before, right? You always expect Man City to win, but yeah, these are these are there, and they've been a little bit not dodgy, but they've been they've not been infallible, especially on the road this year, right? Right. But you look at what they've got to come. They've got City. They've got Liverpool on Saturday. Like I said, Southampton away, Leicester at home us at home. After that, we're going to have a pretty clear idea of where we are because their games after that are Fulham away, West Ham at home, Leeds at home, Everton away, Chelsea at home. And then they've got a toughie on the last day, which is Brentford away, which could be a bit freaky, but the odds are Brentford are going to have nothing to play for by that point. And they do have Brighton away to reschedule in there somewhere. I don't see many drop points for them in that run. Do you? Like This is one of the few chances you're thinking maybe they can drop points. Yeah. So yeah, just looking at the schedule, I mean, it seems our best shot to uh, maintain a good gap is going to be over the next four games for them, because after that, they're going to probably sweep up, you know? Yeah. And I think what we, what we, what we desperately need, what we desperately need is to go into that game at the Etihad, knowing that if we do get beat, we still have a points advantage, you know, and, and I'm I'm wiping away the game in hand. So if they've still got, they they will still have a game in hand at that point, I assume. So we we need to be eight points in front going into that game with them having that game in hand, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because absolutely. I just, I just think if we, if we, you know, and I was worried about this before when we lost it at home. And I think the difference is, when we lost it at home before, there was a long way to go and we just had that lovely run of fixtures. And I know there was a couple of good away wins at the start of it, but let's be fair, we've blown away teams that we should blow away so yeah. far. Like that is what this run has been. And we, have, as a team, we've been very good at that this season, putting away teams we should put away. The tricky ones, the tricky ones for us are still to come and they're trickier than what they have. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, the only thing that gives me a little bit of comfort um, is the gap, the points gap, because I'm, I would bet money we're going to drop more points than City. 
I just, um, you know, hopefully it's not. Yeah, hopefully yeah. it's hopefully it's not too many. And I, and I think I've, yeah. I've said all along, you know, the the uh, not necessarily dream scenario, but the, a great scenario for us would be to match whatever result City get against Liverpool. So mm-hmm. what, whatever, if, if if City lose, I think Anfield's basically a free hit for us. If City yeah. win, I think we have to go there and win. And but if we can match their result here and then get a draw at the Etihad, that would do me just fine. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that seems a pretty safe scenario. Yeah, yeah, and I think if we do that, I think we win the title. I, I do. I just I think it's that simple. I think those are the games that it's really gonna really gonna spin on because if we you know if if all of a sudden because I don't want to be sitting at the minute we want City to drop points because it makes us feel better and it makes life more comfortable. I don't want to be sitting there knowing we have to have Man City drop points. Yeah, I. Ideally, I'd like this to be in our hands the you know for as long as possible i um if we have to start hoping for city losses to like jump back in front or whatever that's gonna uh really stress me and I assume every arsenal fan out there out yeah, I mean it would probably i think if it happens that would probably end my hopes if they did get their noses back in front, even the fact that they've got a few more games to play. I, I don't know. It just it, they've started to hit form, and it does look like a, a run of winnable games. I, I just think, I think if we can get a point there, we we need to get into the nineties on points tallies, right? So yeah. so seven wins now would put us at ninety. That that's a minimum requirement for me. I think we're going to have to go beyond that. Yeah, I think you're right, and um, even though they they've not been typical infallible city it does seem like they're starting to pick up a lot of steam now um like you yeah, and then and, you know and we keep saying that but at the end of the day their points tally isn't that different right now than it's been for the last five seasons at this point so although we're looking at it as they haven't been infallible bar that one insane season this is kind of what they do you know they win the league in the 90s and this is kind of where they are at this point yeah, I guess that's true. You know, just looking back over the season, it does feel like they've um, not had as favorable results. But I guess, yeah, by a points total, they're they are. I think they. I think what it is until the last few weeks, they haven't been steamrolling teams. Do you know what I mean? Like the amount of times we've said, "Oh, well, it it doesn't look like Man City because they've clung on for a win there." And in years past, they would have gone on to get five, six, and seven. And until <laughs> the last few weeks, they haven't been doing that. Yeah, that is very true. And uh, I I do think a lot of it comes down to just, uh, you know, figuring out, you know, their their Holland situation. Um, well, and I think he was figuring out his best team as well. We all know Pep rotates a lot and likes to do this and that. But it took a long time for him to figure out that his best team had Jack Grealish in it. Mm-hmm. And I think over the last few months, Grealish is basically starting every game. And that wasn't the case for the longest time. Um, so I think it just took him a while to figure out his best team. But now he's figured it out. They're they're rolling. So we'll, I mean, we'll be up early over here, obviously on Saturday morning, watching that. And we just we just got to hope for the hope for the best. Really, anything Liverpool can get out of there would be great. And and it's worth pointing out as well that after this game, Liverpool then face Chelsea in midweek before we go to Anfield. So we're catching them on the last game of that three game swing. Um, and I would rather catch them there than at the start. I'd rather be at home. But I'd rather catch them there than at the start. And they've got injury problems too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even want to think that far ahead personally. 
Um, no, I, I, I don't blame you. It's just really, it's just to to emphasise how pivotal this weekend could be. I think this is a real, this is a huge weekend in the title race. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've got it all to do against Leeds as well. Um, you want to transition into that? Yeah. So for that one, like I said before, uh, Big Willie's out. The news on him doesn't look great. Again, you have to take everything with a pinch of salt, but from what I heard is the scan didn't go great. And yeah. uh, there was actually, after the first scan, there was actually talk that he might need an operation to end his season. They had a second scan and they think it doesn't look as bad as they thought. And they think they can manage him through by managing his minutes. That don't sound too good to me. Um, it's a certainty he's going to miss on Saturday. Partey obviously picks up the injury with Garner. He was in training today, smiling, joking around. It looks like he's probably going to be okay. Um, Jesus is back. We've got a hell of a bench now going forward. I mean, for, it, it's funny how this is flip-flopped, hasn't it? Because we went from earlier on in the season, we weren't worried about really about injuries at the back. You know, you've got you've got Tommy Asu, you've got Tierney, then we added Kivior, you know, we've got all this depth at the back. All of a sudden, Saliba goes down in the same game that Tommy Asu does the splits and pops his knee. And all of a sudden, we're back in the stage again where we're in the final part of the season and we're playing Rob Holden. Yeah, it is uh, funny how that works out. Um, and it's just bad timing, too, you know, because if if uh, if Tommy Asu would have stayed fit, you know, we could have easily played him at uh, center back or even moved Ben White in and played Tommy Asu at right back, you know, whatever. But you know, just really, really unfortunate timing. And uh, I do hope Saliba is going to be okay, though. I mean, he's been, you know, massive this season. Um, and I, I probably have more faith in Rob than than a lot of fans. But, um, you know, it, it is, it's it's scary for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not too worried about him on, on Saturday. And it's worth saying Leeds have got some injury problems of their own. It looks like Noto is going to miss. Uh, Tyler Adams is out. And one of their centre-backs, Huber, is it? Huber. Huber. He's he's out as well. So, you know, they've got their injury problems too. Um, and I, I I think we should be okay for Saturday. My worry is going to Anfield and Etihad with, without Saliba and without Tommy Asim. To me, that is, I mean, and, you know, White Hot Lane last year is still fresh in everyone's memories. And that's it's enough to give you nightmares. I think um, uh, optimistically, I think if, if, Saliba was just ruled out today so close to the game I feel pretty good that he'll be able to have an appearance on you know for for Anfield next weekend um you know obviously we don't know and maybe it's not even worth the risk I would um prefer a completely fit Saliba as opposed to trying to just get him through some games but if there's a game we could use him you know it's going to be Anfield of course well, if the, I mean, if the choice is surgery or nursing through, we've got no choice but to try the nursing through route right now, right? Like, there's 10 games to go in this season for us. We've got no choice but to try and nurse him through. And if, you know, if that means managing his minutes to the point where he can't play against Leeds to get through Anfield and, you know, and then we have to arrest him again before we get to the Etihad. And we've just got to do whatever we can to get him on the pitch as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't know if if we're going to have another chance like this, you know. Um, so we've just got to do whatever it takes. I, I maybe even would consider, you know, resting uh, party because 
you know, if he's a question mark, I I'd rather have him for for future games. And I think Jorginho can handle a Tyler Tyler Adams list leads midfield. You know. Well, this is an interesting one because I was going to come on to this now anyway. Um, with Saliba out and Rob Holding sitting there at right centre back, is it less likely that Partey sits out? Um, no, you don't think I do because I don't think you go. I don't think Arteta is going to go into this game with Holding and Jorginho playing. Just, I just don't. I don't see it. That would, honestly, I think you get someone with the slightest bit of pace running at that side of the defence. Jorginho ain't getting across the cover. Oh, okay. So yeah. that's, I mean, that would be panic station. So I, I think if, I think if Saliba was fit, then there's a chance that Partey would be on the bench on Saturday and coming on after an hour or whatever. With Saliba out, I don't see any way Partey's rested. I, I I just don't. I think it's nailed on he's going to start because I don't think he's going to go with Jorginho and Rob Holding. Yeah, that, that is a good point. Sorry, I guess I uh, misunderstood the question. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Yeah, and you don't want – you want as many of the first-teamers you can get on the pitch still. You know, you don't want to just be, uh, uh, you know, plugging in other guys. Um, <clears throat> well, we've only, got, we've only got 10 games to go. Yeah. There's, there's 10 games to go. In this season, you know, it's ten games in. It's ten games in what eight weeks? That's that's not that's not a lot. These guys are, and, and you know, I don't want to go through it again. The resting players, who believes in this, who don't? It's ten games in eight weeks. These guys have got to be able to get through ten games in eight weeks. And you know what? If if Partey can't get through ten games in eight weeks, I I don't know. We've we've been here so many times that to me, that's it's got to be the end if he can't get through that. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. He's um he's definitely not been reliable, and I feel like he's he's went down in like the most critical parts of our season. Uh, for, it's before for, every big game. Like yeah. we literally go into every game against, especially away against Tottenham, Manchester City, Liverpool, and United. We go into every one of them without him. Yeah, you know Manchester yeah. City haven't even really played us. Because when they've not played us with Jesus with Partey in the side, yeah. so they've they've almost played a half half a side. If we can get both of them on the pitch and Saliba for when we go to the Etihad, that's a completely different game. Yeah, that is. Yeah, definitely. So I don't know. I do get the people saying, you know, don't risk him if he's got an injury, and obviously, we don't know what type of injury he's carrying, if any. We we just don't know. We're not privy to that information. If he is carrying an injury where there's a chance that after half an hour he's, his thigh is going to go pop and he's going to miss the rest of the season, of course you can't play him. But I think if it's just a slight concern, I, I don't see any way he sits out. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know the the best case scenario or what you hope for is to maybe get two goals up in the first half and pull them as soon as you can. Um, yeah, I agree, and I think that's the same. I think that's exactly the same. Uh, way that you you look at people like Saka and, and Jesus especially, um, and I think we're at the point now where that also be that also might be how you're looking at Ben White now. How you get Ben White off the pitch, I don't know, but it is something we have to look at, right? Because that is the one position on the pitch now where we've got no cover. Yeah, I know they were talking about this on Arsenal Vision as well. Um... And I found it pretty interesting. Uh, 
I guess it just depends on how comfortable the scoreline is. You know, you've got guys like uh, uh, Royal Walters, um, yeah, who who you you know you don't want to throw in, you know, in the business end of a of a title challenging season. You know, you've got guys like Reese Nelson who've played like right wing back when he was at Hoffenheim. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the thing it's, for me is you don't want to start those guys, right? Like I do not want to see Reese Nelson starting at right back. I I don't. I don't want to see Rob Holding starting at right back if Saliba's back, which I imagine would be what they would do if Saliba was there. Again, Tierney, huh? these, what do you think? I, I don't see it. I don't see Tierney playing. I mean, Arteta doesn't even like Tierney at left back, so I I don't see him playing playing right back. I think I think the cover right back is Rob Holding, and I just think that that option has been pulled away because Saliba's not there. So we're again in this situation where we're getting injuries in the same position again. I honestly don't know who's next in line. I mean, you would think maybe it would have to be Raw Waters. But my my thing more is let's make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, so if you wanna if you if you wanna get him off the pitch, it's generally because the game's in hand. And if the game is in hand, if it was up to me, I would be bringing on Raw Waters. I don't know that Arteta's gonna do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's uh it's an interesting one because I mean, it's a ton of pressure on the kid. You know, it'd be definitely a, a scary, but at the same time, you know, who knows he could play lights out and, you know, be a hero. He could. And and I'm talking about trying to get him in in non-pressurized situations so we don't have to play him in the pressure situation. Do you know what I mean? Like if yeah. after 60 minutes we're 3-0 up, you get white off, you put him on, and that way you're not running the risk of of white hamstring going pop and then you having to start raw waters at Anfield because that's what you don't want to do. You know, so that's kind of more what I'm what I'm talking about. And it's it's going to depend on game state. You know, at the end of the day, we've had a couple of games recently, the Bournemouth game, the the Brentford game, where we went into them games kind of thinking, well, you know, if we can be 3-0 up after 60 minutes, we can do this, do that. It's not worked that way. You yeah. know what I mean? It worked that way in the Everton game, but it 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 hasn't worked that way in a few games. So we don't know where the game state is going to be on. on yeah. It was more a hypothetical if just to get some of the minutes out of, out of Ben White's legs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah, I think game state dependent uh, role Walters would be probably the, the, the best to go there. I mean, you know, he benefits from the experience, but at the same time, I mean, it's a, you know, he's, he's at least a, a right back, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the one person I do not want to see there in any circumstances is Thomas Parter. Yep. I, I do not want to see him at right back. And it's not just because he's bombing forward and all that. If Thomas Parter is on the pitch, it needs to be in the middle of our midfield controlling everything. Otherwise, Agreed. there's no point in being on the pitch. Agreed. I just it, it baffled me when Arteta put him at right back the other day when Raul Waters was sitting there on the bench and we're cruising and the Olays are out. Yeah, I don't like that at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, for as injury prone as he's been for us, it, it just seems like suicide, you know? It does. And to, to you know, and, and when a game is done, if you're going to, I understand why you want to take off Ben White, but if the game is, if the game is done, part shouldn't be anywhere near that field. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. If there's one person we're going to wrap in cotton wool, it needs to be Thomas Partey right now. Yeah. So the other, uh, the other area where I think things are a little bit up in the air is obviously up top. Um, we've said from the start, Jesus came back a game or two earlier than we were expecting. Uh, but I think we we all kind of said before this that that this was the game we we'd be targeting for him to start. I think he will start on Saturday. Um, 
I mean, you know, you're kind of guessing with that front line, but my my guess would be him and him and Martinelli will play and Trossard will will come off the bench. I, I this is the right time to me to bring Gabriel Jesus in. This is why you signed Gabriel Jesus. Uh, to me, he has to start now. Yeah, I would say that's going to be our front three: Martinelli, Jesus, and and Saka. Um, <clears throat> I think he's had a he's had enough time. The international break came at a good time for him. You know, allows him to you know reintegrate with a, a lot of time to train without you know games every few days. Um, so yeah, this has got to be the time to bring him back in, and that way he gets at least a Premier League game under his belt before City, or excuse me, before Liverpool. Yeah, I think he, he he has to start. Like I said, this is why we bought him. This is why he's here. He's going to want to start. You know, all week at, at London Colney, him and uh, him and Martinelli have been have been pointing out why they why they should be starting. So yeah. it doesn't it, it doesn't make any sense to me not to start him. If you want to say we, I'd put Trossard in over Martinelli, I'm not going to fight you on that. I I personally wouldn't. Um, I I think our front three should be. Uh, Jesus, Saka, and Martinelli, and Trossard as the first first alternate, if you like. And at the end of the day, Trossard's still going to get at least half an hour in this game, right? What, whatever happens. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And yeah, I agree completely. The thing is, is, is Trossard's probably well. He is with Enkedi out. He'll be the the first uh, sub for Jesus or the first sub for Martinelli coming in. So it makes sense just to hold on to him and again see what see what game state is like, see how fit Jesus is. Um, if you start him, you kind of, uh, you know, you trap yourself a little bit um, with bring with being able to bring someone on for for at striker or left wing. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. That should be in the thinking of anyone when you're any manager when you're naming a team is what you've got to to come off the bench. And yeah. it's it's a game where we're going to be hoping to be using our five subs and to be using them how we like. And if that's the case, it it just makes so much sense. And and. You know, you only got to give Jesus an hour. He's been building up to this. And I think the other important thing is he needs a goal. I mean, look how much yeah. that they were trying to they were trying to get him a goal the the last game out. I mean, everything the you had Odegaard especially was looking for him every time he got the ball because he's just so desperate to hit the back of the net again. Yeah, and I think that'll be huge for him if he can if he can get a goal pretty early. Um you know, before his injury it did kind of look like uh, you know, he was he was uh, dropping his head a little bit, you know, with just so many chances and not scoring. Um, so I think the the faster he can, uh, you know, get a goal, he's going to be feeling a lot better about himself. Yeah, I think he he was a little bit in his own head as, as well. Do you know what I mean? Like you know, yeah. you know, and he's had a couple of big chances since he come back too that he's that he's not taken, and that's gonna that's gonna play on his mind. I think you know the one at Fulham when he when he should have scored and it ended up being a pass back and. That that is going to play on his mind. I think we really need that. And that stadium is going to erupt if if Jesus scores because we're all we're all waiting for it. We're all willing it in as much as he is. Yeah, it'll be huge uh, and a really good moment. I think. Um, let's see. What do you think about? So obviously, we know Saka is going to start. Um, are you thinking the same midfield? Yeah, I, d- I don't think there's going to be any any messing around here. I, I think you're you're looking at Ramsdale, White, Holding. Big Gabby, Zinchenko, Xhaka, Odegaard, Partey. And I think you're you're looking at the front three of, of Saka, Jesus and, and Martinelli. I, I don't think there's any messing around. I, I said on here the other week that injuries, barring injuries, that's the team. You know, obviously Big Willie in for, in for holding, but that's the team from now till the end of the season. Every single game, unless they're not available. 
Yeah, agreed. And, you know, with us having pretty much only one game a week for a little bit, there's there's no need to rotate, put the best out, and because we really have to put everyone to the sword at this point. Yeah, the rotation's off the bench. We've got five subs. Yeah. The rotation has to come off the bench. You cannot be looking to, when you're, when you're playing one game a week, you cannot be looking to rotate or rest anybody. This is the Premier League. We're going for the title. There is no rotation. There is no rest. One of the reasons we were all very sanguine with going out of the Europa League, the reason a lot of people were actually were, were perfectly fine with us going out of the FA Cup was for this scenario. This is what everybody that was kind of okay with us going out of them competitions, this is what they were hoping for at this point. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's um it's really comforting too, uh the the talent we have on the bench, the talent and the the versatility, you know, Smith Rowe, Vieira, uh Trossard. Um we've got a lot of uh a lot of good impactors on the bench that can um you know really change the way we play if we need to pull somebody on and it's not working with the starters. Yeah, it's it's the the strength in depth going forward is is insane right now. I mean even without Anketia, you're you're looking down that bench and you've got Reese, who's made such an amazing impact this season. You've got ESR that we know he scored, was it five, six games running off the bench at one point last season? You know, second top scorer from, from last year to come on. We know that Arteta loves Fabio Vieira, so he's there to come on. There's going to be one of Martinelli, Jesus and Trossard, whichever one of them's left out, he's going to be sitting there and they're obviously going to be first sub up. So if you if you look at that, that's that's as good as anyone. In, yeah. in reserve. It's as good as what Man City have got in reserve. It's better than what Liverpool have in reserve. So yeah. I think that's, you know, to me, part of the part of why this season is so much better than the last few seasons is because of that. And I think it pushes the first team, um, if you want to call them the first team or the starters, whatever you want to call them, I think it pushes them on more because that challenge is there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um... You know, even having that tactic of being able to take Xhaka off and put on a more attacking midfielder if we need a goal in, you know, someone like Smith Rowe or Vieira is is really nice too. Um, you kind of have a, a tactic you can just swing into if if you need it. And uh, that's something we've not really had much of in the previous seasons either. So uh, I feel really good about the depth and the, uh, you know, the players that can come on and change things. Yeah, and it's not even it's not even just if you need a goal too, because you know we we all remember Arteta death by two hundred thousand passes when you're when you're leading the game in the opposition half. Let's be fair, I love Granite Jacker more than most people, maybe more than his wife. But if you're <laughs> looking at death by six thousand passes in the opposition half, you're probably going to want Fabio Vieira in there instead of Shaka, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Um Xhaka does a great job, you know, uh controlling some tempo. But uh, Vieira has shown even when he's uh, maybe a little peripheral in games, he still can uh, uh, play a great cross or, or you know, pass that can, you know, break the defense open. And I think, I think where Vieira is concerned as well, we need to see him start doing it off of the bench on a regular basis before yeah. anyone even starts this conversation about should he start as a left eight? Because the answer right now is an emphatic no. Yeah. So we need to see him impact the game more off the bench, right? And and I mean, you know, you were saying last week you wouldn't be surprised to see Smith Rowe jump him in the queue. Uh-huh. This is about when we when we need to start seeing it. He he got them minutes under his belt for, for England in the week. Maybe it's Smith Rowe that comes on after an hour 
here and start staking a place because this running, it's everybody is going to be needed at some point. Yeah, I think uh, I, I like Vieira a lot as a player, um, but Smith Rowe just, you know, knowing the team better, being better adjusted to the league already and proving that he can make such a huge impact off the bench with goals. I just see him being very crucial in this last 10 games. And um, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he jumped Vieira in the queue. I also think that Vieira has struggled a little bit more as a late sub, um, you know, kind of growing into the game. And uh, Smith Rowe has proved to be maybe our our best player coming off the bench, our most impactful player coming off the bench. So, so yeah, I'm, I, I hope we do see a decent bit of him in this, you know, closing out the season. Yeah, I'm hoping so too. And in, in part of what I'm hoping for on, on Saturday, obviously he's a, a, a decent win that we're in control of early so we can make these subs. And I'm intrigued to see if Smith Rowe comes on and where he comes on. Yeah. You know, because I just, we've, we've been listening to James Benj talk about he's been training exclusively as a midfielder, yet when he come on, he came on on the left wing, which I completely understand because, well, one, he came on for Trossard one game when he was injured, so it was a straight swap pretty much. Well, right. Martinelli switched in the middle. Um, but also, you know, I've said to you before, I think when a player's coming back from injury, what you do is you put them in the position that they know. Right. Yeah. He's just coming back to fitness. What you don't want is him coming back to fitness, worrying about his body and worrying about what he's got to do. Whereas if he goes on to the left-hand side, he knows what he's doing. So I think that's a part of it. But I am intrigued to see how he gets used now that he's kind of now that he's kind of back and we can maybe get a little bit more of an idea. Yeah, I am too. Um, but I think either way, whether he's coming in at, at left wing or or left eight, you know, I mean, I think he can have an impact. But I will say, uh, I'd say Trossard's probably firmly ahead of him in that left wing spot now. Um, yeah, so- oh, absolutely, 100%. But Erdegaard comes off every game too. I mean, it's late. That's true. But if yep. you look, Erdegaard comes off between 80 and 85 minutes nearly every game. Yep. Maybe that's where ESR goes in for now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never know. It, it's definitely going to be uh, an interesting thing to watch. And like I said, I mean, I just, I just have a feeling we might see ESR more than Vieira in, in this, the, this end, uh, this end stretch. So that's something I'm, I'm definitely interested to see how that shakes out. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, I think we've, we've looked at the weekend from our point of view pretty well there. So let's break for the end of the first half. We'll come back in the second half and we've got some stuff to talk about around Bukayo Saka's contract and, and a couple of other bits. So we'll see you after the break. Welcome back into the Non-Negotiable Podcast. This is part two. Just I want to start by touching on something here. Um, Arsenal fans, especially on Twitter, love a straw man argument, right? <laughs> We've been over this before. They love a straw man (laughs) argument. And I remember going through one earlier on in the season in kind of like October or November and someone wrote, oh, Arsenal fans need to be humble. And and it was an Arsenal fan writing, it needs to be humble and not doing... And I'm like, man, I haven't seen a single Arsenal fan at this point say we're going to win the title, we're going to do that. I'm still not seeing that now. I I would not say this fan base has been arrogant, presumptuous or anything. No, nope. along the way, um, but someone still felt the need to make that argument, even though no one was doing it. We're in that territory again. 
last week uh, during the pod, you you brought up that you'd seen someone tweet out that Saka's contract was going to be closer to three hundred thousand a week than one hundred and eighty, which was what was uh, rumored, which I thought was ridiculously cheap. Um, three hundred thousand still seems like a bit of a, d- a discount to me. I think it's like two eighty plus, uh, two somewhere two fifty plus bonuses or something, whatever it is. Um, there isn't an Arsenal fan on the planet who thinks that that's anything other than a fantastic deal for Arsenal while giving Bukayo Saka something that he absolutely deserves as one of the top 10 players in the world, at least. Um, His compensation is going to be commensurate with that. There's been a flood of Arsenal fans on Twitter calling out other Arsenal fans for saying that Bukayo Saka doesn't deserve this wage. I haven't seen a single Arsenal fan say that. Uh, He deserves it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I've not seen a single Arsenal fan say he doesn't deserve it either. Um, So that's interesting. Like you said, I mean, the fan base does love a straw man. Oh, they Um, they love it. They go mad for a straw man. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's... he's, um, I would say my only concern with it, let me just caveat it with this first, is that, you know, for his next for his next contract, you know, where do we go from there? But, you know, that, that's, that's silly. That's just the rational part in my head, but um, he deserves this. You know, he's, he's our most influential player, probably our most marketable player, or he will be very shortly. He's, he's potentially England's best player or has been, you know, for the past, you know, pretty much since the Euros. Um, Saka is, is a star, um, he's world class. This is the this is the going rate for that kind of player. Absolutely, it is, and he's ours. And we've got to make sure that he stays here. And if that's what it is, then then that's what it is. And you know, I think what a lot of people don't don't take into account. There's a big thing. Well, how much money does a person does a person need? Well, first off, footballers are nowhere near the top of the food chain when it comes to compensation and bonuses you want to look at the banking sector the medical sector and about a million other sectors out there they're they're paid they're paid a hundred times what footballers are paid even at the top end so i think that argument is stupid to begin with but if you're talking about the best players in the world and what they're paid three hundred thousand is not above what any of them guys are being paid and the way it's measured it's not just well, why does he need another 30 million quid? Maybe he doesn't, but this is how you're measured. This is how he knows that Arsenal see him as one of the best players in the world because they pay him like it. Messi and Ronaldo for years spent time signing their next contract to be bigger than the other one. And why do they do it? Ego. They need to be told that they are better. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, that's very true. But uh, another way I would look at it as well is, <clears throat> and this is along the same lines, to be fair, but Saka needs to know that we appreciate him. You know, we value that because, you know, maybe he would have taken less on this contract. You know, we don't know. I mean, he seems a, a really humble kid, you know, but it's not him, though, is it? Let's be let's be fair. Right. Let's, yeah, let's him, say no. this at the start with with the vast majority of these players, they probably don't even know what their wages before they sign the contract because Bukayo Saka is not the one negotiating this contract. If you think Bukayo Saka is sitting down in a room with Richard Garlick and Edu <laughs> saying 250, no, 260, no, yeah. 270. Like, yeah, exactly. That's just not what's happening here. That's not how it works. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I have no problem with it. Uh, that is, you know, I look at it like this. If we, if we would have signed a new player who was, you know, just as good as Saka, but he was coming into the team, I don't think anybody would have a problem, like someone as good as Saka. I mean, I don't think anybody would have a problem, you know, with this player getting that kind of wage. Um, and you're you know, going to so- pay 100 million plus for him up front. Anthony cost Manchester United the best part of 100 million. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's, you know, it's uh, there. I don't think there's anything to argue. You know, he is he's our star player. He's the face of the team, basically. I mean, he, he got what he deserved. I agree. And we're going to have this discussion again at some point over the next year where Martin Erdegaard signs his deal. Yeah. There's going to be similar numbers involved with the Erdegaard one. Every single Arsenal fan is just going to be desperate for him to sign it. And we're going to think he deserves every penny. And then there'll be a few Arsenal fans out here on Twitter telling every other Arsenal fan that they need to stop criticising it when no one's criticising it. You know, uh, (laughs) one thing I will cut some, some, you know, these supposed Arsenal fans, some credit is we've been burned a lot in the past, you know, with, with these, these big money deals and the players just basically shutting down. So I guess I, I could understand the, the, uh, the fear, I guess. Um, but you know, I mean, Saka's young, he's hungry. This isn't some, you know, uh, you know, Aubameyang or Ozil in the twilight of their career and we're begging them to stay. So we're just throwing ridiculous money out at them. It's a totally different situation, you know? Um, so I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I'd find it, you know, really hard for someone to make an argument as to why, you know, Saka doesn't deserve this because, I mean, like I said, it's just the going rate for a player of his talent nowadays. And we could have done worse, to be fair. Well, it, look, in the past, yes, we have vastly overpaid for players, right? We, we have, we've, we've vastly overpaid wages for players. And there's generally been reasons for that. And I'm going back to, I'm going back to Theo Walcott. Now, when Walcott was given the 14 shirt and 140 grand a week contract, it was absolutely ludicrous. And that was out of fear. We'd seen players walk away for free. We'd seen players like Van Persie refuse to sign and we've had to sell him in the last year. Walcott knew what he had leverage. He absolutely used it to get the maximum out of it. Personally, if it was me, I I wish Arsenal would have just walked away from that deal and just let him walk on a free. But he knew what he knew what they would do, and they were so scared of losing him for free that they give him that contract. Ozil, similar boat. Alexis was not going to sign a contract. We knew he wasn't going to sign a contract. We'd resolve for him to go for free. Then we got panicky in January and just took what we could for him, which turned out to be packet of kettle chips in Henrik Mkhitaryan. It was, you know, one of the worst deals in everybody's everybody's view, really. Yeah. Um, and Ozil got that contract out of fear. It didn't work. Fast forward a couple of years, we're in exactly the same situation again. Aubameyang's got a year to go on his deal. He's the talisman. We've just won the FA Cup. Everyone's looking at him. Again, I had a problem with this deal too, because I... I said this on the last pod, you pay for what someone is going to do for you, not what someone has done for you. Yep. That payment to Aubameyang was 100% for what he had done. There was no one believing that he was going to be worth 350 grand a week when he was 34 years old. And I mean, look at how his career has gone now. I maybe didn't expect it to nosedive as quickly. The Aubameyang you're seeing now is exactly the Aubameyang I expected to see 
midway through 2023. Yeah. You know, even if that deal would have worked out, this is what he would have been now anyway, and we would still have been paying that contract. They are very different to this Saka contract. Saka, you yes, you're rewarding him for what he's already done, but all, he, all he's really done to this point is proven that he's going to be worth this contract, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's got really nowhere to go but up, you know, um, you know, in, injuries and stuff like that aside, if, you know, uh, touch wood. But um, yeah, it's absolutely, I mean, I imagine this deal will look uh, quite good here, you know, in just a season or two. Um, and I mean, he's poised to, you know, really blow up. He's already improved his goal scoring numbers. Uh, so, I mean, I, I just think it's it's going to end up looking like a bargain. Do you know uh, off the top of your head what, what was the contract length? Because I've I've seen the amount, but I've not 2020, seen it. 2028. So it would be it okay. would be five years. Okay. And and you're absolutely right. Top wages at the top don't go down. Yep. You know it, it's not like in four years' time players of an equal standing to Saka are going to be earning a hundred grand a week. Right. They're going to be earning six hundred grand a week because that's what happens with wages at this level. They go up. So I think by the time we hit 2027, we're going to, I mean, first off, we're going to be looking to renew before then anyway. But if we hit 2027 with him on those wages and he carries on on his trajectory, everyone's going to be saying, my God, we're going to be looking at, we're going to have to double these wages. Yep. So I I just, again, it's it's a straw man argument. I haven't seen anybody at all criticise the numbers in the contract or anything like that. We just all want it signed, really, is what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was probably the most important bit of business we're going to do, um, even counting this summer. I think, um, you know, like I said, I mean, he's uh, he's integral to what we're doing going forward. And um, I mean, he's only going to get better. I mean, the kid's unreal, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I did want to touch on I don't want to make a transfer pod or anything, but I do want to touch on a link that seems to be getting stronger over the last couple of days. We <laughs> talked about it earlier on. Um Vitor Roque from Paranense in in Brazil. He's uh, a football manager wonder kid for anyone like me that loves football manager. He's not very big. He seems a little bit Gabriel Jesus-like in in stature and and the way he works and stuff. From what I read, there was pretty much a it was pretty much accepted that he was going to Barcelona. Barcelona is obviously a basket case of a club that you just don't know what you're going to get from one week to the next. The latest one I've heard is that uh, Gavi. Uh, has now been demoted back to the B team because his contract was ruled invalid by a Spanish court. I don't know if you heard this, and if they I haven't got sorted out, he's technically a free agent in the summer. Wow. I expect they will get it sorted out one way or another. Yeah. Um, but it seems every week Barcelona are doing something more illegal than the week before, and they're under investigation again for the for paying off refs now, which yep. uh, I think we I all that. knew Barcelona were at anyway. Yeah. Um, but uh, that has apparently put his people off. Edu is obviously extremely well connected in Brazil. He's been in constant contact with Vita Roque's camp. Um, it looks like this is one that may that may well happen. It's very exciting to think that we are now a club that is at the front of signing these sort of players, right? Because this is not a deal that we would have been anywhere near five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's huge, and and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I um. You know these these like wonder kids coming out of South America. We would have we would have never been involved in this just a just a short while ago. 
I, uh, I took the, the time, I took an hour or so today to, uh, to really like dig into this player. And I, no I, one uh, tell I, Justin's boss. <laughs> I, uh, I do really, uh, really like him though. He, he does seem very Jesus like, um, kind of a, a nimble technical, uh, center forward that can play uh he's comfortable on either wing but much more so on the right so yeah i would say he's pretty analogous to um to jesus uh but i mean his goal scoring numbers look really strong he's got a lot of appearances under his belt too for his age um so yeah i mean it it looks it looks really promising i don't know exactly i mean price could be all over the place but i think it's going to be reasonable just because he's coming from the brazilian league still it's a gamble, but he looks like he's further along in his development than someone like, you know, Martinelli was when we signed them. So, I mean, it, you know, it's, uh, th- I mean, this could be a, a big deal. He's very highly regarded in Brazil. Um, you know, very highly regarded on football manager, like you said. <laughs> so, uh, so this one's exciting. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a deal too, where if we do get it over the line in the summer, I don't think he's coming to go out on loan to Norwich like Marquinhos did. Do you know what I mean? I think if yeah. we, I think there's going to be not assurances that he's going to play, but I think there's going to be assurances that he gets chances because this is a kid that's going to have his pick of a lot of top clubs. Yeah, exactly. I would say he goes right into the first team if we did sign him. Um, you know, we're not signing a, a starting player or anything, but he, he'll he be involved, um, I'd say, right from the off. Yeah, and it may be one that, thinking ahead, allows you to send Balogun out on loan to another Premier League club or maybe one that allows you to cash in on Balogun already. I did also read something else, and I don't know if you saw this, but it was an interview with Balogun while he was over here, and he didn't outwardly say anything, but Balogun seems to be someone that makes a lot of hints at what he's going to do next, and there was a lot of talk about the next move in his career. Now he's been to France and, 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 you know, scored a lot of goals and really succeeded was that he wants, he needs to go somewhere now where he's going to play. It kind of had an inference that maybe he feels like it's time to move on. So I, I, I am starting to wonder if, you know, and, and there's echoes here of Bernd Leno and Emmy Martinez in a different way, right? right? One of them had to go. You couldn't keep both. And I do wonder if you're in that situation with, with Eddie and Balogun. And personally, I don't think the club chose to keep Leno over Martinez. I think the money on the table was for Martinez, not Leno. And I'm wondering if that's going to be the situation in the summer again, whichever one the money goes on the table for. And it could be in Ketter. I don't know which one it's going to be. But I do wonder if whichever one the money comes on the table for is the one they take. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was the case. Um, and I, I, I honestly, I expect it to. I don't think we have um, room to keep both of them as well as, you know, looking at somebody else like uh, Vitor Roque. Um, and what's more than that is that, uh, you, you know, players, uh, I think of like Martin Odegaard, you know, he... Um, one of the big reasons he left Real Madrid for Arsenal is because, you know, he was tired of going out to a new country, a new club uh, every season. He wanted to be settled. And um, I imagine it does get tiring having your, your future completely up in the air, especially after a good season like Belligan's had in France. But the fact of the matter is he's just, he's not going to be our starting number nine. Um, you know, he's not. And, and to be quite honest, I'm not sure what he can do next season to come back as the starting number nine. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, yeah. I, I just, 
I don't know that he is going to be someone that's Eddie was someone that has been prepared to sit around and wait. Eddie has shown patience beyond patience to sit around and, and wait for his chance. But Eddie never had the season that Balogun's just had, right? Like he, he just didn't. He scored a few goals when he was on loan at Leeds, but mainly coming off the bench. So he hasn't had that breakout season, for want of a better word, which is exactly what Balogun has just had. I do wonder if that's going to mean that the offers are going to start to come in. And I do wonder if that means that Balogun's agent, who also, by the way, happens to be Eddie's agent, yeah. is uh, banging on the door and saying, hey, you know, it's time for us to to find an agreement here and move on. Yeah, um, it would be really hard for him to go from being, you know, the main striker uh, starting every game, you know, to, to coming back and being maybe even third choice striker, fourth choice striker. Um, you know, ideally, I'd like to find him like a Premier League loan next season and keep him, you know, one more year. Cause you never know. I mean, if he puts, you know, if he puts in 20 goals in the prem or something like that next season, which I know is unlikely, but I mean, that's huge. That's a player, you know, you, you might, you know, we'd look at and reconsider. Cause I mean, that'd be a great season. Um, that has to be, that has to be what happens if he comes back. Right. Like, like I don't see uh, with, if, let me, let me put it this way. If he doesn't come back and integrate into the squad as a first team player, the only other option to me at this point is a Premier League loan or Serie A or maybe La Liga. I, I don't think you can get him back and send him to Holland or, or or send him back to France. I just don't see I just don't see that as being an being an option. No, definitely not. Um, he's going to want to be like I said. I mean, I think I think being settled is going to be you know a, a big factor to him, but he needs to go to. Uh, he needs to make a step up in his next club uh, for sure. And he's going to want that as well. And I think as a club, we're going to want that too, you know, to see what he can do, especially in, um, in England. So uh, it's going to be a difficult situation for, for a and co because um, you know, you've got Eddie who, like you said, has been really patient. And then you've got Balogun coming off this big season. You've got us targeting another striker p- potentially. And then, you know, Jesus, being you know pretty much the main guy now we have trossard who's who's filled in great as a false nine but it's not a bad thing it's a great situation to be in even if it is complicated because you know we've got two strikers now that aren't essential to the team that are both worth quite a bit of value to the club so it is is, well this is the situation we've been trying to get to yeah exactly Yeah, there's nothing wrong with this situation. I just mean it, it's it's a it's a it's going to be a difficult choice. I think um, it is. Fans, it's it's a win-win for the club. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And fans just have to understand. You know, if if um, if we sell either one of them and they go off to have a great season or whatever, you know, it's not like we we didn't necessarily miss out on that. You know, we we made a decision and you know, hopefully we net a lot of profit for it. But I mean, that's what you want your youth players to do. You know. Yeah, that's the point of the that's the point of the youth system. You are yeah. not going to get many players like Bukayo Saka come through your youth team. You're just right. you're just not. You're going to get a lot more players like Joe Willock or Ainsley Maitland Niles. More, yeah. more Willock, I guess. That, that you know, Joe Willock is a, is a good Premier League player. We got good money for him. We've had we've had players in the past that have gone somewhere else. First, I'm thinking of uh, Steve Harper that went to Reading before he went to. Before he went to Chelsea, and we've had a, we've had a few of those where we we maybe haven't haven't cashed in the way we should have, 
but now we've the a much cleverer loan system that we've got going on i think this is that this is the chance to fund the future generation as well as the transfers in yeah exactly and you know i mean you look at someone like chelsea who you know i, I mean i don't want to uh you know compare us to or anything but they've done a, an excellent job you know profiting a lot off their youth system and i I think we do a, a a better job in the sense that um, we're much more specific about where we send our loan players and 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 whatnot. Try to find a good fit, but they're uh, they're a really good model for how to like maximize profit out of their youth academy. And like you said, they're not all going to make it. And I know we we form these uh, sentimental attachments to a lot of these guys, but this is exactly the situation that we want to be in. We want to have these kids coming out of our academy that we pay, you know very little no transfer fee you know just their their development and then we we turn big profit on them this this is great and this is something the club hasn't really been able to do very often in a long time yeah that's it's true and you know the players that have gone you know and there's players that have Alex Iwobi is Everton's best player right Joe Willock is an important part of the Newcastle squad these are players that were sold for big money no one regrets them no one would turn around and say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that sale again. We'd all make that sale again 10 times over. And even Chelsea, you look at it, they could have had Mo Salah, they could have had Kevin De Bruyne. Well, first off, they probably wouldn't be Mo Salah and Kevin De Bruyne now because they wouldn't have got the first team opportunities. But secondly, after selling them, Chelsea went on and won two Champions Leagues. So I, I don't think it's that, it, you know, we, we do, as fans, you're right, we do get attached but I think there has to be an understanding that we are Arsenal supporters first and foremost, and you want what's best for the club. And what's best for the club is that you get a mixture of these players coming through and then players that you can you can make money off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, we, we stand to make more money off the Youth Academy potentially this summer than we than we ever have. You know, I'd say we have players in Enkedia and in Balogun that we could get 40 million plus for hopefully more, but you know, that's, that's a lot of money for a, for a player that's probably never going to be more than second choice at best. And all that goes towards raising your FFP ceiling as well, because as much as we all say FFP doesn't exist and this and that, there are still rules and guidelines. I mean, there's a reason that Newcastle haven't just gone out and signed nine of the best players in the world. They can't, they can't stay under the FFP laws by doing that it's one of the reasons why I'm unless it obviously allows Spurs in I don't really want them getting Champions League football I would much rather Liverpool get the Champions League spot because I don't want that FFP ceiling lifted for Newcastle in that way and we're you know we've been out of we've been away from the big table for a long time now so our ceiling in FFP is very much capped because we've not had that income coming in for that long so this is important stuff yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had a, a you know a mostly Champions League squad, you know, on on Europa League, um, you know, a Europa League leash for for a while, and um, I mean, like by bloated wages and stuff like that, not not necessarily talent. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I mean, yeah, this is the situation you want to be in, and, and we've got a you know, I think what we do this summer will will uh, you know, it it could potentially set a, a good precedent for the for the club. Well, it's the first summer, really, that we are not in open heart surgery mode, right? Like, yeah, that's like right. you, you could say last year we, we weren't. But if you look at the jump we've made, 
it was major surgery that was done to this team last summer in Zinchenko and Jesus especially. It yep. was major surgery that was done to this team. I mean, you know, Ben White switched positions with Saliba being able to come in. This is a different team, really, to the one the year before. And every year since about 2012, we've been we've been either firefighting or completely trying to change the situation. This is the first year. It's basically maintenance. It's basically a tune-up. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Um, you know, we're not uh, we're not going to have a ton of squad turnover. It's really just you know, finding the really good fit players that we can just plug into a couple weak areas, but this, the spine of the team is set. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and you're just all we're trying to do, really, it's no longer a case of, oh, my God, we've got to get six of the first 11 out and get six of the first 11 in. Yep. All we're looking to do is get one or two tweaks. We want one or two extra options. We want maybe an upgrade in an, in an area or two. We want maybe the guy to come in and replace someone who's, who's aging out. That's all we're doing this summer. We have not got the major surgery before. Now, we're going to have the same budget, right? You've got to think we pretty much spend between 100 and 150 million every summer. We're Mm -hmm. going to do the same again this summer, maybe even a little bit more because we're in the Champions League again. But when you can do that on a couple of players to really raise the ceiling of your squad, rather than than having to spread it across six players because you're trying to create a floor, for a, a team that didn't even have a floor. We were floundering in 15th at one point, you know, two years ago. Yeah. So this is a completely different scenario. Yeah, and, you know, for the first time that I can I can remember in a while, we have some, um, some saleable assets, excuse me, some saleable assets, uh, you know, that won't be heartbreaking to lose that could actually bring in a lot of transfer fee, you know? We'll have guys like uh, Sambi and, and Tavares coming back who should, well, Sambi's a little more questionable, but Tavares should definitely turn a profit. You've got a guy like Rob Holding if he's ready oh, to. I, I think Sambi, I think Sambi will turn a profit. I, I, I'll tell you something now. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you a little wager live on air. All right. I think we'll get more money for Sambi than we do for Tavares. I mean, yeah, it's it's possible. You and know, I think I, they both cost pretty much the same, right? Were they both about seven million, or was Sambi more than that? Sambi was more. He was like was eighteen he? million. Oh, was he? Okay, he was a lot more than I thought. But yeah, I think we'll get more money for Sambi than we will for Tavares. Tavares has not been as good as people think he's been. You've seen a few clips on YouTube. That's not really the whole story with him. He's had games where he's been hooked at half time. <laughs> a lot of Marseille fans don't particularly like him. You're just seeing the bits where he cuts inside and fires a rocket into the top corner from 30 yards. You're not seeing the bit where he's out of position because someone else is running in behind and scoring. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, he obviously had a lot of uh, positional indiscipline and stuff like that. But I think the interesting thing about Tavares is he could uh, he could do really well in a in a specific system. You know, if if you play wingbacks and have him pretty well covered and his job is to you know, bomb forward, cut inside and, and cross, you know, a la uh, like Adama Traore. He could be well, a really dangerous asset to, so to a certain team. I've, I've always thought it, he would be worth a try in Bukayo Saka's position. Not for us, obviously, but as a, as a right as a winger, winger cutting inside yeah. onto, that, onto that left foot. Um, I mean, he, he, he hits a few too many out of the stadium for my liking, but he does have a good left foot on him. He can definitely beat a player. We know that. So I don't know, are you getting further away from your goal and closer to the opposition goal? That's where I'd rather see him. But I know it, it hasn't worked out like that for him so far. And, and Marseille, like you said, have been using him in that left wing 
position where he's had some where he's had some cover. So we'll see what happens there. But I I, I think we're going to have more suitors for Sambi than people realise. I think Sambi's a lot higher thought of in the game than he is by fans. I think we were clouded by a couple of bad performances yeah. um, that really skewed the narrative more than it should on Sambi. I actually quite like Sambi. I think he's a decent player. I'm not saying he's at our level, um, but I think he's, for someone like Crystal Palace, I think he's capable of being their best midfielder. And as we've seen with Joe Willock, that's a £40 million player. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I know uh, Vincent Company was really high on him. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe a promoted Burnley, you know, under under company come come right back in for him. Um, and I think that'd be a, a really nice place for him. They play uh, they play good football. Yeah, they've, they've definitely turned it around from from what they were back in the day. Yeah, so, for sure. I never thought I'd say that about Burnley, but no, then... <laughs> no, for sure. Well, let's let's touch on this real quick. Um, sure. So Arsene Wenger was uh, inducted into the Premier League Hall of Fame this week. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, I'd forgotten there was a Premier League Hall of Fame. I'm, <laughs> I'm not a Hall of Fame guy. I'm not an individual trophy kind of guy in, in, in football. I don't I don't put a whole lot of stock in a, in a lot of these individual awards and stuff. And the, the Hall of Fame to me seems a, a little bit stupid. But it's always nice to see Lebos get recognition. Um, obviously, well-deserved. Never any doubt, obviously, that, that he was going to he was going to go in. But it's, it's, it is nice to see the recognition, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely deserved. And his his uh, influence on, you know, the Premier League can can still be seen in a lot of areas. So, yeah, it, it was really well deserved. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him. Yeah, he was a big part of, of my life growing up. Obviously, he, he, you know, when he took over, I was, what, 17 when he when he took over. Um, so, it, you know, I grew up basically I grew up with George Graham first, but I grew up with Arsene Wenger being kind of the, the one constant in my life. Do you know what I mean? My mum and dad moved away, moved countries and, you know, changed girlfriends. And the one thing that was always there was uh, was Arsene Wenger. I would see him every every other Saturday for a while, every Saturday because I was going away as well. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a big, a big figure in a big figure in my life growing up for sure. And it, it it's always good to see people with a club rewarded like that. And Arsene Wenger, since he left us and took that job with FIFA, I think I've found it a little bit hard to come to terms with. I've I've yeah. found it hard with some of the things that he's done and some of the things that he's said. And it's nice to be able to go back and look at him the way I always used to look at him rather than look at him in a FIFA suit, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I agree. Yeah, there's been some, uh, some ideas he's floated or some statements he's made that uh, I find a little questionable with regards to like his position with FIFA. Um, so yeah, it's nice just to be able to focus on, on, uh, you know, a positive and, uh, you know, he had a, a rocky, you know, end to his, end to his managerial career with us, but, uh, I try to, you know, just, just look at the good. I mean, it, it, you know, it was a great period regardless of, you know, how things go. And I still look at him as, you know, top, top manager. Yeah. I mean, he gave me some of the best footballing memories of, of my life, basically. Um, some of them sides that I, that I got to sit there and watch firsthand. I never thought I'd see something like that. You know, you're talking about someone that in 94 was watching a midfield of Hillier, Hillier, Selly, Jensen and McGoldrick. And and like, I don't <laughs> want to disparage any of them players, but to go from that to be watching 
Cole, Perez and Henri combining on the left with Lundberg coming in from the right and Dennis pulling the strings with Vieira ruling the midfield. That's uh, That was a long way that we came in the space of like four years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, um, I kind of came into my Arsenal fandom with that team. Uh, so I don't really remember what it was like before that. But yeah, I mean, it was it was just uh, uh, magnificent to watch those guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I still see people tweet every now and again, oh my God, I've just found out that Arsenal wasn't named after Arsene Wenger. <laughs> that's a that's a common one you, you see tweeted out. I mean, it was it was it was kind of perfect symmetry. It's like when Wolfgang Wolf managed Wolfsburg. Uh, it's, yeah, it's that symmetry that you that, that's uh, that's good fun to play with. Well, yeah, he, he still needs a statue. I'm. Uh, yeah, I think the statues come in. I, I personally, I don't think a statue's enough. I would still like it to be the Arsene Wenger Stadium sponsored by Emirates. Um, that's that's how I see it I, I don't think a statue is enough for what Arsene Wenger did um and like I said I've been I've been a bit disappointed since he's you know he was very loyal to his employers wasn't he yeah he was. Us, you know he, he took a lot of flack for the Cronkies especially in that time he he basically he was the bulletproof vest they'd throw him out when things weren't going well and he would defend them to the hilt and I guess one of the things that 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 FIFA got when they hired him was that attitude and that that loyalty um to to me it's just a shame because i've always thought of him as such a such an incredible man of, of great stature um to see some of the things he said is is a little disappointing but I, I don't really want to dwell on that yeah of course um he he just seems like somebody that um <clears throat> you know whatever he's doing whatever he's involved in he is he's a hundred percent in um yeah, he's an incredibly driven guy. I mean, you can yeah. you can see that. You and and you know how much it hurt him at the end too, with how long it took to come back. And I actually think he came back at the absolute perfect time to the Emirates. I, I don't think it. Honestly, I don't think he could have timed it any better. Yeah, agreed. And uh, you know, I'm glad he's not been this this large, lurking, shadowy figure like Sir Alex Ferguson has been at Old Trafford too. You know where the camera cuts to him every time there's a, you know, a goal conceded or something like that. I'm really glad we're, we're not in that situation. Yeah. Agreed. It, I mean, it was, it was hard enough for Unai Emery to follow him, let alone if he was actually there physically looking yeah. at him. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there was, there's the thing with uh, when, when Bill Shankly left Liverpool um, and he was back at the training ground at Melwood every couple of days, he'd be there. And Paisley had taken over at that point. And there's a bit, I think it was Mark Lawrenson who said it caused a lot of confusion because they didn't even know who to call boss. You know, they'd be walking in the, they'd be walking in the hallway and Shankly would be walking down and, and by, you know, the natural, the natural um, reverence would be for them to say, you know, good morning, boss. He's not the boss anymore. Bob Paisley is, how does that make Bob Paisley feel? Yeah. So I, I think you're you're right there, and Ferguson's Ferguson's presence I think does harm United in I that way. Yeah. you know, I, the one thing I'm surprised about actually with with Ferguson is that he never came back. You know, after after Moyes or after Van Howe, I am really surprised that Ferguson didn't come back, even if it was just for six months. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know he's had his health issues since, so it wouldn't be an option now. Um, but I, but I, you know, as present as he is at United at all times, I am surprised that he's not there yeah that is a good point yeah um 
because he he's had many opportunities just to like step in and steady the ship and he's you know he's kept his distance at least from from the uh from the bench you know yeah he, he has i mean he's not kept his distance from the media or from the club but he, but from the bench he he has but i uh, you know it's just it's i've thought a couple of times after they've got rid of a manager maybe he's going to step back in for a few months and and the thing with with someone like him and it would have been the same with Wenger is that a couple of months could very quickly turn into a couple of years yep yep so all right well let's leave it there um good pod seeing as once again we've had no football to talk about we did at least get the preview <laughs> time this time yeah. um so we'll be back on we'll be back on monday oh, hey you got your your player your oh uh... yes well reminded that the who am i yes well reminded i uh, almost almost forgot that so um yeah so the the who am i um once again, I started at Leeds playing 146 league games before I moved to Arsenal playing 223 games. I returned to Leeds playing a further 209 games before ending my career at Arsenal with 18 further league appearances. Who am I? Is it Lukic? It is John Lukic. Pass got that too. So nice. that's a good one. Hey, little, uh, little fun fact about John Lukic. So there is an urban myth that John Lukic was actually an unborn baby aboard the... Uh, Manchester United flight from Munich that crashed in 1958 uh, seems to have come about because there was a Yugoslav stewardess called Lukic on the plane, uh-huh. but it was not John Lukic's mum. John Lukic was born in 1960. The plane crash was in 1958, so his mum would have had a pregnancy of about 18 months. If uh-huh. that's be true, so it's not true. But it is a fun, uh, it is a fun urban myth. You should uh, go read about it if you if you haven't read about it before. Yeah, I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for. Uh, Thanks for reminding me of that, Jazz, and uh, hopefully you guys got that at home. Um, like I said, let us know on the socials. Once again, we're at the NN Pod everywhere on all the socials, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Good night. <laughs>